All right, good morning, church family. I hope you got your Bibles with you. You can grab them, turn to the book of Haggai. We are in our third week now of this sermon series, walking through this very short book, two chapters only. This series, we're, we're looking at this idea of living with kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective is one of the six core values here at Heritage. And living with kingdom perspective, what does that look like? Where we live our lives with God's kingdom in the forefront of all of our decisions and our motives and those kinds of things. Today's title is called From Suffering to Blessing, which sounds like a pretty positive talk, so I feel like we should all be feeling pretty good about the fact that when we walk out of here today, we will be thinking about, you know, blessing and good things, not negative things. Um, You know, there's this thing called conditional reasoning, and so if you're a real smart person, scientist, you know what that means, the conditional reasoning. It's like, if this, then that, okay? If this happens, then that will be the result. It sounds kind of like something I remember when I was a little kid. They said something, you know, like, uh, for every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. You hear that? Remember that? I'm not a scientist. I don't know much. It's kind of like this, though. If there's a cowboy game on TV, Brian will be watching it. (laughs) If this, then that. Does that make sense? Conditional reasoning. It's logical. Okay? Like, if we're inside 10 foot, Brian will make the putt for birdie. Okay? Now... That last one might not be always true. Um, But here's what I do know. If God is the one that says, if this, then that, you can take it to the bank every time. If he's the one that says, this is what I've decided. If this happens, then this is the way it's going to be. It will always happen because God is sovereign. God is eternal. And he has decided how he will act in eternity past. He's already put it in place. You can't change God's mind. You can't say, well, God, I know this is what you said, but... And then, you know, give some sort of long talk like your kid does when they try to talk you into something. You've already decided the answer is no. So you sit and you listen and then you go, thanks. But no, God is that way. He's already decided how things are going to happen in his created earth. If this, then that. And I want to show you something. I know you probably already turned into the book of Haggai. I said that. But I want to show you something. Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 28. In my Bible, I've got these little headers. You have those headings. In different parts of your Bible, I want you to look at the headings. There's two headings in Deuteronomy 28. We're just going to look at the headings. And I want you to see what they say, okay? If you remember, God has rescued his chosen people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. He's gotten them out of there. They're wandering around the wilderness. He gives them all the rules and all the law. And he's getting ready to walk them into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 28, two headings, they say this. What? Blessings for obedience... You see that in your Bible? And what's the next heading? Curses for disobedience. Okay? Logical. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Obey equals bless. Disobey equals curse. Um, There's a theologian named Ian Dugid said this. He said, God created the world to be a place where holiness and happiness went hand in hand. So it's no surprise that unholiness and unhappiness are often found together. Okay? Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. So unholiness and unhappiness are often found together. Obey, bless, disobey, curse. Now, for the Israelites, this is what some of that looked like. These blessings for obedience were agricultural. Okay? We will um, plant the seed. God will make it rain abundantly, and we will get more than we even thought we would, an abundance, 
Okay? Military. God will have his hand with us, go before us, show us favor, and when other nations come against us, we will win. Remember Joshua taking them into the promised land and all the great almighty works of God that he did? Okay? These are blessings for obedience. In the same way, the curses for disobedience were the same kind of categories. Agricultural. Okay? We're going to sow a lot and reap very little. There's not going to be any rain, famine, drought, all these kinds of things. Military. God's going to take his hand of favor away and allow other nations to come in and even wipe us out. And that's where we find the Israelites at the beginning of Haggai, right? They had gone into captivity from Babylon, had wiped out the whole city. They got to finally come back to the city. But what was going on? They were still under Persian control and agricultural famine, drought. They were working really hard, getting nothing out of it. Remember chapter one of Haggai said it was like they were getting paid from their job and putting it into a bag that had holes at the bottom. Nothing was going good. Curses for disobedience. But, chapter 1, after hearing God's word from Haggai, what did they do? They obeyed. They feared God, they turned back to him, and they obeyed, and they got back to work. After 20 years of not working on the temple, they got back to work and obeyed. And so that's where we're at. So verse 10 of chapter 2, let me just set the stage here. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month. Now, remember, Haggai is very concerned with telling you exactly what time and day and month of the year it is as he is asking, uh, as God is asking him to speak for him to his people. And so, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. It's been three months since they got back to work. Let me just help you. Three months. The foundation has now been finished. Okay, they've been hard to work. God wants to use this milestone day as, as a teaching moment for his people. And he's going to do that by, by instructing them. And he starts by asking two questions. And they're kind of weird questions. So let's read this, verses 11 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Everyone didn't have their own little copy of the law, the Old Testament. So they had to say, ask the priests about the law. What's it say? Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy also? The priest answered and said, no. Does anyone else wonder why they'd be carrying holy meat in their pocket? Because as soon as I read it the first time, that's the only thing I could think of. Why, why is this holy consecrated meat in this guy's pocket? We're going to come back to that. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, okay, second question. God wants to know this. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, they have gone and they have touched a dead body and now they are unclean. If they touch any of these things, the stew, the oil, the wine, the bread, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Two questions. What is God talking about here? Holy meat in someone's pocket. Okay, so there is this place in the law in Leviticus 7. So you can write in your notes of Leviticus 7. You can go home and read that this afternoon, and you'll know all that we're talking about here about these peace offerings. But in Leviticus 7, God is talking about this peace offering. I'm going to read for you really quickly what's going on. Verse 11 of chapter 7 in Leviticus. And this is the law, the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. 
I'm going to skip to verse 15. And the flesh of the sacrifice, okay, the meat portion of that sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But, okay, if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, different, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But then on what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. So there is a possible possibility that this vow offering or free will offering, someone could have taken their meat to the temple to have it consecrated and made holy. They're going to eat it. They're going to eat some of it, but then they're going to say some of it, put some holy consecrated meat in his pocket and walk home because the next day he's going to finish it. Are we clear? Holy meat in the pocket. This is why that might happen. And God says, now, if that holy meat is now consecrated and in his pocket and that pocket goes about and touches anything else, does that anything else become clean? No, that doesn't make any sense. But he says, but if a dead uh, body is laying there and Brian touches that, Brian is now unclean. I would never do that. But if it happened, this is God's rhetorical question. He said, if it happens, I'm unclean. If I go and touch anything else, does that anything else become unclean? The answer is yes. And so he's saying that's what's going on. When we are unclean people, anything we do becomes unclean. It is unacceptable. It is defiled. But when we are clean, we can go about our business, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we make everything else clean that we touch. A little bit difficult. The ruined people, the ruined temple for the people of Israel, it was like this dead corpse in their midst. It was that thing that of their disobedience, their sign of their disobedience. He had sent them back to rebuild the temple. They had got started and they had quit for 20 years. And that, those ruins, as they lied there, it was like a dead body. So no matter what they did, even if it was good things, it was unholy, it was unclean, it was defiled. Are you with me? Because the people were unclean and defiled in God's sight, then everything they offered on the altar of the Lord was also unclean and unacceptable to God. Their status before God had to change, not just their little habits and behaviors. Their status before God was unclean, unacceptable, unholy. It had to be changed to acceptable, clean, and holy. And just like in Haggai's day, holiness is not transmitted to us by contact. Okay? You don't get to say, man, I'm, I'm buddies with Sid Brock, so I'm in good shape. I don't care if you grew up in the most incredible Christian home with the best Christian parents of all time. Okay? That does not make you a Christian. I don't care if you come to the most incredible Christian church every single Sunday. These things do not make you a Christian any more than spending a bunch of time in the ocean will make you a shark. It doesn't happen that way. Religion cannot save you. Even true religion because we ourselves are unclean. We're defiled. We're, that's what's at the root. That's what's going on at the core of us. Something else has to happen. Even our good work offerings cannot be accepted by a holy God. This sounds like uh, what Jesus said to the Pharisees, by the way, who were excellent at practicing good works. Excellent at trying to follow the law. This is what he said to them. Woe to you. Not W-H-O-A. Like, woe. W-O-E with eyebrows down. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We understand this, don't we? I mean, in this day and time, it's all about what we look like on the outside to others. Isn't that what social media was invented for, right? So that you could look at my social media and go, look how awesome his life looks like on the outside. Isn't that what we do with social media? We are Great at coming in on Sunday morning and displaying an outward appearance of having it all together because we don't want others to think uh, what's really going on inside. We don't want them to know the truth. We want to display something. But what does God say? Well, man judges by the outward appearance. You might be able to fool man, but I judge the heart. Even our motives are unclean. James 4, 3 says that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Even when we try to do good things, the motive at the bottom of our heart is wrong because we are defiled, we are wrong, we are unclean. Every single one of us has been stained by what? By Adam's sin. Who's Adam? Adam was the first guy God created. And because sin entered the world through him, every person born of Adam was born into sin. We are born unclean, and we can't just choose to turn to God on our own, even if we wanted to. It must be coming, it must be something that comes from outside of us. We can't just perfect some sort of uh, weekly schedule, some sort of pattern that makes us holy, and all of a sudden God goes, oh, yeah, good job, good job, you got it, now you're clean. No, God is holy, and even our, our best effort falls short. So this has to come from outside. It has to be God's free gift of grace. It's the only thing that will clean us. It's the only thing that would clean the Israelites. God had to step in and do something. Don't forget that in chapter 1, God was the one that initiated this whole thing to begin with, wasn't he? The Israelites were going about their lives. They weren't really enjoying life. They weren't getting much out of it. They were suffering the consequences from their disobedience. God stepped in, sent God's man, Haggai, God's prophet with God's word to say, hey, It's time for you to turn back toward me. God initiates salvation. God initiates it for you, for me. We're not good enough on the inside to initiate that ourselves. God has to step in and do something. And that's what he did. God promises to bless his people by turning disaster into abundance. Let's look at verses 15 through 19. Now then, consider from this day onward... Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? He said, let's look back before you got back to building the temple. But when you were still living in disobedience, when you were still living with the consequences of your sin, let's look back. How would you fare? Well, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. God reminds them why that was the case. He says, uh, this wasn't just some sort of coincidence. What's the next word? Verse 17. I. God says, I was the one that struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. He wants them to look back and remember the result of their disobedience. Even though the people were experiencing God's judgment, they were experiencing the curses for their disobedience. And they knew from Deuteronomy 28 why they were doing it, but they didn't turn back to the Lord. This reminds me of a time that I spanked Braxton when he was little. It's okay. I know you're not supposed to do that, but he turned out okay. So 
I, he was pretty little, and he was too young to take his phone away from him. So I was spanking him. I wasn't trying to hurt him. He needed to be disciplined, okay? Quit looking at me like I did something wrong. I spanked Braxton. He'd been spanked before. This wasn't the first time. And you know what he did? He turned and smiled at me and laughed. <laughs> oh. I just wanted to discipline him, so why? I wanted him to turn and repent and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Make it right again. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't do that. So I spanked him again and again. I spanked his butt seven times until he finally, with tears in his eyes, said, I'm sorry, and he wrapped his arms around my neck. There, it, was, it was an easy thing to, they could have done to, to make it right. And the Israelites, they're like, God's saying, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just disciplining you so that you'll turn back to me and yet there's no rain there's no food you got nothing to be full with you're miserable about your life and and you won't turn back to me I mean do you feel God's sorrow if you've been a parent don't you know you're just like why, why wouldn't you just why wouldn't you just turn back to me why wouldn't you just repent mm. you might think man Brian you're right what was wrong with those stupid people those are Israelites, man, what's wrong with them? Uh, don't be so quick to judge the Israelites because you know that this happens in our own life and in those around us all the time. I don't care what it is. Trials, chaos, divorce, loss of a job, injury, unrest, war, whatever it is, it does not necessarily lead us to repent and turn our faces back to God. It doesn't. Oftentimes we will try to figure it out on our own. I can't tell you how many silly times it has been of me that I've done 10 or 9, 11 things, whatever it is, before I go, oh, yeah, maybe I should just pray and repent. Maybe God Harry has a plan. If this, then that. Even if we do try to step back and examine what's going on, we stop short of repenting and turning back to him. Consider our ways. See, I think we'd like a solution to our pain and to our struggles and to the situation that we're in, but maybe not necessarily a solution to the sin that lies behind it. Can I say that again? I think we would like a solution to our pain and struggles and the situation that we're in, but not necessarily a solution to the sin that might lie behind it. Sometimes people will turn to religion in difficult times, won't they? I mean, after 9-11, the next day, the churches in New York were full to overflowing. People looking for answers. The people of Israel, they're suffering through all these things. The consequences of their disobedience. They would bring sacrifices to the temple ruins, trying to worship the one true holy God at the place he said he would be worshipped. But because they had not obeyed, because they had not turned back to him and repented, just a waste of time, they continued to suffer the consequences of disobedience. Isn't that crazy? They would actually go to the temple that was in ruins, the thing that was causing them their problems, to try to get God's favor back. They were trying religion. They were trying to, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, and see if we can get back on God's good side. Obey bless, disobey, curse, and they continue to suffer those consequences, those curses. Throughout this short book of Agai, we see God telling his people to consider. Consider your ways. Consider what happened. Take inventory of your life. Church family, can I say, I think God would say the same thing to us today. Consider your life. Consider your ways. Consider your past. Take inventory of your actions, and even more importantly, take inventory of your motives. 
Because God is not fooled by our outward appearance and actions. What is it in your life that might be keeping you from experiencing God's fullest of blessings? What is it? You see, it's relationship, not religion, that saves. Did you hear that? You should write that down. That's good. It's relationship, not religion, that saves. This is, this is not normal human thinking. That's opposite of human thinking. That's only God thinking. Human thinking is if I get up early enough and work hard enough, then I will accomplish this. And we try to bring that into our salvation experience with God. If I'll just do this, 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 and this, and not do that, 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 and that, I will be better than most, good enough to get into the good graces of God. Isn't that what we see all the time? TV, movies, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. What the heck does that even mean? The Bible says that not even one of us is good. Not one. True repentance, a turning back to God with every aspect of our life. The main point of our passage today is that religion cannot save even when it is the true religion. I mean, you've got to give the Israelites some credit. They weren't even worshiping Baal at this point. They were worshiping God, the God of Israel. They were bringing sacrifices to his temple. But they had not cleaned up their heart. They had not turned their face back to the one true God and repented to obey so God wants them to look back and remember the result of their disobedience. But now they had turned back to him. See, I told you it was going to be good. Chapter one, they feared God. They got back up and got to work. And it's been three months. The foundation is level now and finished. And God's like, OK, now what happens? Disobey, curse, obey, what? Bless. He wants them to look forward, and now he wants them to anticipate the result of their obedience. Look at verses 18 and 19. Consider from this day onward. He's going to tell them what it is. The 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the tree, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. God reminds the people again that it was he who struck them in verse 15 and 17 with the drought, the crop failure and inflation due to their disobedience. Oh, but look out. The people have now obeyed. They have returned to the Lord. The foundation is now rebuilt. And what does God ask? He says, is the seed yet in the barn? Well, no, it's winter time. The seed is in the ground, but it's not harvest time yet. He says, get ready because of your obedience. Here comes blessing. The fruitfulness of their labor is still unknown, but from this day on I will bless you, says the Lord. This is God's way of promising a reversal of the crop failure, a reversal of the famine and drought. God is promising like a bumper harvest in response to the people's obedience to prioritizing the rebuilding of his temple. See, when God announces his plan of salvation, it does not come through some sort of slow, long process of learning how to perfect religion we got to get that human thinking out that if somehow I can perfect all of God's word and his law, that that's how I will receive salvation. It cannot work that way. It comes only from God's decision to give us peace through the dwelling, residing, the living with his people. That's where that peace comes from. That's why Jesus is that Emmanuel, God with us, come to give peace to the earth. This is what the temple symbolized. And now the work was formally underway. The foundation is finished. 
And God has declared a change in status for his people. This is the key. When God declares you no longer unclean, but clean, now you're clean. When God declares you no longer guilty, but righteous, now you are righteous. Not because of your effort and the things you have accomplished, but because of his decision to dwell in your heart. When we obey, we receive blessing. And the biggest blessing we can get is a change in status before an almighty, holy God. There is God, this holiness, this cleanness of God is his otherness. Do you understand that? There are two categories in the world. God is one category and everything else is the other category. God is creator, everything else is creation. There is no one, no angel, no nothing that is up there with God. God. And because of the Israelites' obedience, he once again could reside in their midst and receive their offerings because of their now cleanness. Because now they and their offerings would be acceptable because God has changed their status before him. This is the kind of change we all got to have. Do you understand that? It's not about good and bad. It's about clean and unclean. A change in status before an almighty holy God. See, before we come to God, everything we do is unclean. Everything we do is defiled. Everything we do is unworthy, unacceptable in God's sight. Look what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean. We have all become like one who is unclean. We have all, to anyone in the room that thought they were doing pretty good before God, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All our good effort falls short of this holy God. Because of our own defilement, we cannot make change that we need by our own effort. We're not good enough to make that change on our own. It has to be God. It has to be outside of us. Just as the rebuilding of the temple was the turning point for the Israelites, the coming of Jesus is the turning point from curse to blessing for the world. Did you know that? 500 some odd years later, when Jesus arrives on the scene, that is the turning point for the world from curse to blessing. Why? Because Jesus is the true temple of God. See how that works? The whole thing fits together. The one in whom God dwells in us so that he can change us from unclean to clean and restore us from suffering to blessing. He does that. The holiness that enables us to stand before God as one of his adopted children does not come through contact with Christianity, but through union with Christ. Do you understand that? Write that down. The holiness that allows us to stand before a holy God does not come through contact with Christianity, but through union with Christ. He says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one stands before the Father, comes to the Father, gets credited as acceptable before the Father, except through me. And God reminds us in Ephesians 1, 3, that in Christ, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And you can add, he will continue to do so. Because if you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. Adopted, like was read earlier, as sons and daughters. Chosen as sons and daughters. You're part of a family that you cannot leave, that you can't be kicked out of because you didn't deserve to get in in the first place. 
In Christ, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. There's a song that, that uh, Ainsley's group danced to a couple of years ago called Clean by Natalie Grant. And every time they would dance to this song, every little competition we would go to, man, it just, it wrecked me on the inside, the lyrics to this song. Because when you recognize the depths of your own sin and where you were, how dirty, how defiled, how unclean, how unacceptable before God you were, it will blow your mind that God would send his son Jesus to take your place, to take your unrighteousness so that you can be called righteous. Let me read some of the lyrics of this song. I won't read too many of them, but it says this. It says, there's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy and I am clean. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news to any of you who have ever woken up thinking that you were too far gone for God to save you? That if, that if everyone knew what you had done, that there would be no way that they would think you could ever make it to heaven because you're just too far gone. God says, no, there's nothing too dirty that I can't make worthy. He does it. The song goes on and says, washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood flowed red and made me white. My dirty rags are purified and I am clean. Amen. Is that your story today? Has God washed you white as snow? Are you clean before him? Are you holy that blameless before him because of Christ's work on the cross? If so, then amen. I'm excited to tell you today as we get ready to close that there's been some people in our church family that have had that happen to them recently. And I know I want you to celebrate with us. So I'm going to show you a video. One of our teenagers, Kelly Schrock, made the decision to turn her face back to God and obey him and trust in him. And she was baptized recently at the beach. We're going to show you that video. Then right after that, Miss Faith is here today. We're going to show you her testimony video. And then we're going to baptize Faith in this water right now. Isn't that a good way to finish our time today? Yeah. Watch these videos. Because one of you is going to be baptized today. You're like, Kelly, come here. This is my friend Kelly. If you don't know Kelly, Kelly's made a decision to trust Jesus with her life. And she wanted today to be a special day where she showed you guys, the youth group, our church family, giving her life to her. Kelly, you want to say anything? Okay, she don't want to speak. So what are we going to do? We're going to walk straight into that water. So, you know, you gather around, get close. If you want a video, fantastic. We're going to baptize Kelly. What this is, for those of you who don't know, it's an outward symbol of what's already happened in Kelly's heart. She has said, I'm going to die to myself. So we have this picture of going under the water like burial. And she wants to live a new life to Christ. And so what's this is like a picture of that. So we are excited for her because this is the most important decision any of us could ever make. And uh, we now know that her salvation is sure. She can know that. She gets to live with the Holy Spirit now dwelling, living, residing in her heart. And uh, changes her life completely. So let's go do it. You ready? All right, let's go.
Kelly, let me ask you, have you made this decision to trust Jesus with your life and to live in his ways? <laughs> yes. Okay, because of that decision, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in new life. Awesome. Hi, my name is Dave, and I'm here to do my baptism testimony. Yes, my husband Richard, Sherry, and Brian Williams, they all helped me to come to know Jesus. I knew I needed Jesus when I understood about, like I said, the good and the bad things, and I want to get away from all the sins and start over again. When my daughter passed away in Connecticut, it made me very sad. And it changed my whole life. And I want to make, I want to better my life and understand God's ways. My favorite um, verse is Psalm 23. And this is the way it goes. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in garden meadows. He leaves me beside peace, peaceful streams. He, revert, he renews my strength. He guides me uh, along the right path, brings honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me, your rod and your staff. Protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You're all, you honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all through the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. They are wonderful, very friendly, very caring and loving. They make everyone feel like family. For my life to be better, I want to thank the Heritage family for letting us join the, the wonderful church. We have been coming to Heritage for five years. This church is so great, everyone makes you feel at home. All right, come on, Faith. Share, you coming? Is Richard coming or is he going to stay all the way back there? Richard, you coming? You want to sing a song? No. No? <laughs> this is Faith. This is her husband, Richard. Miss Sherry Polk has played a, a really big role in, in uh, the discipleship of Faith and her coming to know the Lord. Faith, thank you so much for your testimony. I'm excited. You know, Faith has had a really difficult life. Uh, she, can, uh, she can hang with anyone when it comes to telling the difficult stories that have happened. However, she every time I see her, she wants to talk about what God's doing in her life. Big smile on her face because she understands the blessing that has come from having her eternal life secure in Christ. Even though difficulty comes on earth, we know that our Savior has conquered the earth. And one day when we see him face to face, he restores all things perfectly new. 
And so that's what we celebrate, and we celebrate the decision that you've made in your heart. And this is a story, a testimony, a, a sign, a picture of what has already taken place in your heart. So anything you want to say to these people? Thank you all for being here. And I love the, the Heritage Church family. I love that. Well, we love you, and we are here to walk alongside you in this journey. So let's go. Yeah, I'm with you though, and it it feels nice. Yeah, okay. Bart took good care of you. All right, let's scoot up a little far so I don't bonk your head in the back, okay? Just have a seat right there. <laughs> You're gonna do great. Let's scoot up just a little bit, Faith, because of your proclamation, your your testimony that Jesus is now Lord of your life, that he has taken residence in your heart. We baptize you today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk in new life. Yeah, not bad.